Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is one of the most distinguished jurists in our field. An economist by training, he's taught at one of France's leading business and management schools for 50 years and has held numerous other academic roles, including on three occasions, Global Professor of Antitrust at New York University. Perhaps best known for his steely chairmanship of the OECD's competition committee, over which he's presided for around 30 years with authority, patience, and a great sense of purpose. He's also been a vice chair of the French Competition Authority, judge on the French Supreme Court. He served as a non-executive director of the UK Office of Fair Trading. He's been president of the WTO Working Group on Trade and Competition, and he's written with insight and passion about antitrust policy and enforcement. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Frédéric Jenny. Fred, I'd like to start with the goals of competition law. You've been among those who for many years have questioned focusing solely on the, on the promotion of efficiency and consumer welfare, arguing that these goals were too narrow and constraining. Can you explain why? Well, I don't think that uh, I have argued that the promotion of efficiency and consumer welfare are too narrow and constraining. So let me uh, go back to uh, what I think I said. As an economist, of course, I think that economic competition promotes efficiency and consumer welfare. Um, but the point is that in most cases, competition laws have different objectives than economic competition. Uh, it may be the control of economic power, the achievement of the single market, fairness, the promotion of uh, competitivity of the domestic firms, uh, uh, the promotion of historically disadvantaged segments of the population, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you go across the world and you look at competition law, you see that they have goals which are quite different uh, sometimes. Uh, from uh, the narrow economic goal of promoting efficiency and consumer welfare. So there are very few cases and possibly none uh, where competition law was adopted simply uh, to maximize efficiency and consumer welfare. So the adoption of a competition law is a legitimate political act and it reflects political trade-offs. And what we as economists can say is something about the cost of pursuing other goals besides economic efficiency. Uh, but uh, I think that this is the only thing that we can say. Um, if I take the debate, for example, uh, in the US, which is very lively about uh, the goals of competition law, um, it seems to me that it's fairly reasonable to assume that Senator Sherman did not have the promotion of efficiency and consumer welfare in mind when he proposed the Sherman Act uh, and that the US legislators who adopted it uh, didn't have this particular goal in mind. They had in mind something which I think is much wider to protect small and medium-sized firms against the power of economic trusts um, and uh, uh, to protect the government against the economic power of trusts. So, um, I think that we should recognize the fact that uh, unfortunately for economists, they don't rule the world. 
um, they have pretty good ideas about what economic competition can achieve, but very often the competition laws do not match exactly this objective. Can I explore that just a bit further? I think you, um, I think you're right. We've seen um, we've seen in the last few years, uh, not just in um, uh, those jurisdictions that are fairly new to uh, the competition world, but in some of the more established uh, jurisdictions, a kind of mission creep, it seems to me, uh, with antitrust expanding, or at least uh, the use of antitrust expanding to try to um, uh, to try to pursue a broad array of uh, policy objectives, um, far broader perhaps than they've been conceived of for several years. You've alluded to some of them, fairness, maybe maintaining employment, securing sustainability, respecting privacy in some cases, creating champions in other places, now curbing uh, foreign subsidies. Does this worry you? I think that when, first of all, I recognize that there's a trend towards applying competition law to a wider set of issues than uh, used to be the case in the past. Uh, now, does that mean that there is a, uh, I don't know, weaponization or an extension of competition law? I'm not sure for several reasons. And, and this is going to be linked to my first uh, uh, answer. Uh, you may recall that 25 years ago, uh, Giuliano Amato was a constitutional scholar and former prime minister of Italy, and at the time uh, was the, uh, the head uh, of the chair of the Italian Competition Authority wrote a book which he called The Bounds of Power. Now in this book, Amato argued that the freedom of individual to trade um, can lead private power to infringe both on the economic freedom of others, but also on the integrity of public decisions. And that as a consequence, there's a need in liberal democracies um, to protect society against both uh, the illegitimate uh, private power and the illegitimate uh, public power. And he argued that the function of competition law is precisely uh, to uh, set the economic boundaries between the acceptable uh, expression of uh, private and public power. Private economic powers could limit the economic freedom of others, as well as it could threaten the power of the states. And that's why we need this uh, frontier. Now, this frontier, you know, first of all, I believe that uh, there was quite a bit of wisdom in this uh, approach by Giuliano Amato. But I would argue that this frontier tends to shift over time because of objective circumstances on the one hand, and also because of political uh, uh, shifts in, in, in the mood of uh, countries, um, the evolution of political ideas, I would say. So in the 1980s and the 1990s, we were in a world where the development of competitive markets through competition, trade liberalization, was seen largely as a win-win uh, situation uh, it allowed consumers in uh, developed countries uh, to enjoy uh, the benefits of uh, lower prices and therefore it increased their standard of living. And it also afforded the economic opportunities in particular to, be, to uh, the people in uh, developing countries. And we did see that a great 
many millions, hundreds of millions of people got out of poverty through this. So we were in a world where competitive markets were a win-win situation and where therefore the idea was that competition law, the intrusion of the state in economic freedom should be as limited as possible to allow this competitive process to be for the benefit of everybody. I think that uh, we are facing quite a different world today. Uh, um, the, the first reason is that uh, slowly as globalization developed and comp international competition developed, we have realized that it was not a win-win game. And we have realized that the labor was not mobile in particular, and that it would be a win-win only if labor was mobile as it is supposed to be, or as theory assumes that it is. But when labor is not mobile, it means that there are going to be losers in the competition game. There are going to be firms that are going to go bankrupt and the labor in those firms is not going to be able to move to another place where there might be uh, economic opportunities or to find other jobs uh, than uh, the jobs that they had originally. And those people are going to be displaced. So that created a first um, questioning about the wisdom of uh, the spirit of the 1990s. Um, so, that led to, uh, at, on, in the international scene, to the idea that unfair competition could be destructive, uh, really, and not uh, at all a win-win. And then further to this, we have faced a number of circumstances uh, which uh, have led us to believe, generally, that government intervention may be more justified than we thought in the 1990s or in the early 2000s. The financial crisis in 2008 uh, showed uh, clearly that uh, even competitive markets, such as the banking market or the real estate market in the US, can go wrong and that uh, they need to be regulated. Uh, um, the COVID crisis showed us something else, which is the fact that uh, on markets, there can be some circumstances which are going to lead to a disadjustment between demand and supply and that the adjustment through competition is going to be very slow and sometimes too slow. And that's what we saw when we were all looking for masks to protect ourselves and to prevent the, uh, the development of the COVID crisis. And in those cases, it was clear that the past open policy had led to a situation where government needed to intervene to try to allocate whatever masks were available to try to minimize the negative externalities of, of the market. And then we moved on to the climate uh, crisis, the realization that indeed trying to maximize output through economic efficiency to allocate resources in such a way that we're going to have maximum output may in itself have a negative externality, which is the depletion of uh, resources for the next generation. Um, and that maybe we uh, wanted to preserve the possibility uh, that the next generation would enjoy the same level of uh, uh, standard of living that, that we have. And that therefore maybe we should move from um, allocative efficiency to sustainability as an objective. And finally, 
there's been the digital revolution, uh, the emergence of the digital sector, the development of the, uh, the sector, which has meant that uh, two things. It has meant, first of all, that clearly there was a need for huge reallocation of resources to help the development of the digitalization of the economy, and uh, that therefore some kind of industrial policy had to be uh, undertaken to facilitate this movement. Um, and second, it has revived, I would say, uh, competition between nation states uh, over technology. Um, and uh, again, there is the idea that government should intervene. So I think that the border, the frontier between private power and public power, which uh, Amato talked about, has shifted. And now there is much more tolerance or even desire to see governments intervene and to limit the private power than used to be the case uh, previously. So I think that what you are referring to, this expansion of antitrust, to a certain extent reflect that shift in uh, the ideas and the fact that there's much more um, desire, I would say, to see government regulate uh, private power than used to be the case for the, the reasons which I've uh, explained. Now, on a more technical level, I would say another thing, which is the fact that not all the extensions that uh, we talk about are really um, so new or so extraordinary. Let me take uh, two examples very briefly. One of them is the uh, extension that we see or that we think we see uh, to uh, labor issues. Okay? So there is all of a sudden, there's a great deal of concern about the fact that uh, uh, there are non-compete clauses in employment contracts and that this reduces the intensity of competition uh, on the labor market and that this is an issue that antitrust should deal with. Um, some people say, well, you know, this is not the role of antitrust. I mean, this is an, an abusive extension of antitrust. Now, on the other hand, in many countries and for many years, we have considered that uh, buyers cartels, um, whereby buyers of something try to keep the price of their input low, lower than it would be under competition, um, uh, is an antitrust violation. Well, labor is one of those inputs, and there is no reason why we should say that uh, if you buy something physical, then you cannot get together to try to uh, get an abnormally low price or an especially low price, but you cannot do the same thing for labor. So there's nothing all that new about the fact that uh, those issues uh, could be part of a standard antitrust. Uh, the second example that I would give, and that's uh, the last one, is about uh, climate change uh, and sustainability in that sense. Uh, now, climate change requires, I mean, it's basically a call for two things. One of them to say that uh, the efficiency defense should be wider than it usually is, particularly in Europe, where it's very narrowly construed. And uh, when you argue that an anti-competitive practice can have uh, an efficiency defense, uh, you limit it to two things. Uh, um, but one of them is that you limit it to the consumers who have been hurt directly by uh, uh, the anti-competitive practice. Now, um, if we're talking about climate change, it's very clear that the 
efficiencies uh, that may reduce uh, the, uh, the um, carbon emission, for example, are going to benefit to everybody, not only the people who are uh, uh, the customers of, uh, uh, let's say, the automobile manufacturers, but also the people who don't have a car. Okay. So there's a first desire to say, well, when one takes into consideration efficiencies, one should be wider, have a wider spectrum than used to be the case. And the second call is to say, shouldn't we look a little bit more dynamically? Uh, shouldn't we have a time perspective, which is a bit longer than the one that we're used to? Uh, we're used to look at static efficiency in a very, very uh, uh, immediate sense, um, shouldn't we take a longer framework or more uh, a framework that would extend two or three years or, or four years, uh, uh, which would be uh, midterm? Now, economic theory doesn't say that we shouldn't do that. I mean, it's only the practice of competition authorities, which has been over the world, to have a very narrow definition of what is an acceptable efficiency and a very narrow time frame. So. If we adjust competition law to take into consideration sustainability by enlarging the concept of uh, efficiency that we would recognize um, as uh, a benefit, uh, or if we take a longer term perspective, this is not really calling into question the goals of competition law. This is adjusting the tool. And Fred, the, the flexing or the... Um adjustment that you uh, speak of as you preside over the OECD competition committee, how widespread uh, do you think there is uh, acceptance now of this, uh, of this new environment? Um, that's uh, difficult to say. I mean, they, we are clearly in a state of tension in the sense that uh, there are a lot of people who would argue that uh, um, for example, on the last example I took, uh, if you uh, take a longer per time perspective, uh, well, you're not going to be able to see as accurately and as exactly what the situation is going to be. And there is, on the other hand, as you uh, have mentioned in your question, your original question, there is a great desire on the part of uh, competition authorities to uh, face uh, and to deal with some of those problems. And, and this is pushed because competition authority wants to be seen as relevant. And if they are seen as being irrelevant, uh, they are not satisfied and no one is satisfied with the uh, competition law. So I think that uh, I wouldn't talk about acceptance, but I would say that there's a tolerance that is increasing. And, and if you look at Europe, for example, it's very clear that you have competition authorities like the, the Dutch competition authority, which is far in advance. Uh, you look at the EU Commission, it's it, it, dealing it as a chapter on uh, sustainability in its guidelines, uh, but it still doesn't uh, very clearly uh, decide that um, out-of-market efficiencies are going to be taken into consideration. So, but yet it adds a chapter. So, I mean, we are in a state of flux. Let me turn to merger control, where after several decades, I think, where uh, there was broad consensus, I think, as to the way in which um, uh, the merger rules will be applied. We've seen increasing activism over the last uh, few years uh, with the U.S. agency heads together with a number 
of other agency heads, the FCO, I think, of the CMA, the ACCC, uh, calling for more interventionist enforcement and, and themselves intervening more often and more forcibly. I have two questions. First, did you see this coming? And secondly, what's your reaction? I think that uh, it's pretty obvious that there have been called for strong or stronger enforcement. Um, and, but that this call has been largely a call for stronger enforcement against very successful digital firms uh, and that competition authorities have been under a lot of um, criticism, I would say, by people who thought that in the past they have not acted against uh, mergers in particular that have uh, increased the power uh, of those uh, platforms. One of the reasons why there's been this call, I think, is the fact that the digital sector has attracted uh, attention because a few very large platforms have made extraordinary amount of profits in a very short period of time. And this has attracted, captured people's imagination and said, well, there's got to be something wrong if uh, uh, nothing is done to prevent them from uh, getting all those profits. Um, now, it may be true first, technically, that the digital sector may warrant a special vigilance uh, uh, on uh, competition issues um, because of the rapid, very rapid pace of uh, development of the technology, uh, the importance of this technology, the tendency for digital markets to tip uh, because of network effects and because of uh, uh, other effects uh, of that kind. So the call for vigilance in itself is not extraordinary. Um, but from an economic analysis uh, standpoint, of course, I have a reservation, which is the following. Just the fact that a few very large platforms make an enormous amount of profit doesn't tell me anything about competition. And there are three origins possible for those profits. One of them is the fact that they become very efficient, they have lower costs. Uh, okay. And so they allow a lot of tasks to be made uh, with lower costs and that's great. The second thing is that uh, they may have a huge amount of profits because they increase the quality of a number of services or they create new services, which are very much desired. So they expand demand and that's also great. Uh, now, the third possibility is indeed that they have monopoly power and they use it, okay. Now, the fact that they have a lot of profit doesn't tell me anything about whether this is the good profit, like the good cholesterol or the bad profit, like the bad cholesterol. So I don't think one should be excited by the fact that they have a lot of profit. One should try to figure out what is the origin. And uh, uh, from the competition point of view, we want to avoid the monopoly of rent, but we don't want to discourage or to penalize profits, which comes from uh, efficiency or uh, innovation. Now, uh, so I think that's one part of the answer to your question. The second part is more general. What you raise as a question is over and beyond economic reasoning, whether competition authorities should be responsive to changing political climate. Okay, there is a climate that power is, uh, has all kinds of uh, 
uh, possible negative aspects. And in particular, the, the digital power can undermine democratic governance. Uh, and therefore, there's a call for competition authorities because they have a tool to try to intervene, to try to keep this, uh, 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 this power in, in check. Um, now, it's an open question whether competition authorities should be responsive to this. I mean, first of all, there are countries where uh, competition is enforced by political appointees, and the U.S. is certainly the case uh, where both the head of the FTC and the head of the Justice Department, even though he's independent, but they are chosen by uh, the, uh, the political forces which are in power at the time uh, uh, after, the, after the election. Second, in countries like Europe, where we do not have such a close link between political power and, uh, uh, and the power of uh, the antitrust agencies, there's a question there. Um, what we've seen is that the EU has decided to propose a change to its guidance on abuse, uh, on exclusionary abuse of dominance, to try to take on board some of those considerations. And, and this proposed change is in fact really a, a bit of a change of philosophy and, and will lead to changes uh, in enforcement. Um, is this legitimate? It's hard for me to think that it's entirely legitimate, uh, particularly because it's openly uh, uh, done. Uh, so everybody is clear on what is uh, happening. Um, we have a concept of competition, which clearly has changed for the reasons which I've explained before. Uh, we have competition authorities adjusting to those new uh, uh, political will or political interpretation of what competition is all about. Um, I don't think that it's entirely illegitimate. And I think that it was predictable uh, precisely because I think there, for the reasons which I've explained, I think there have been those changes in the mood about what competition should mean. Fred, I'm sure you know well that uh, businesses like certainty um, and um, many will feel there's been a relatively certain, relatively predictable enforcement environment in the merger control field for about 20 years. That seems to have changed very fast and very quickly. Just within the last uh, week, we've had the FTC uh, bring a case, a conglomerate effects case of a kind that 20 years ago, the FTC and the Department of Justice were highly critical of when the European Commission advanced a similar kind of theory in the General Electric Honeywell case, we've seen in the Microsoft Activision case, the CMA uh, blocked the transaction on the basis of a remedy offer that the European Commission uh, considered not only to be acceptable, to, but actually to be uh, to bring advantages of some kind. Um, with this uncertainty, I think seems to come uh, a breakdown of a consensus, perhaps, and a, and a divergence. Um, uh, between agencies. And obviously, companies have to face a world where they may have to accept the judgment of, um, uh, of the most interventionist agency. So my question, Red, is, has a long-standing champion of convergence, after all, the OECD, in a sense, seeks to bring agencies together in an, in an effort to secure convergence or a common view? Are you worried about what seems to be increasing divergence? And what do you think can be done about it, if anything? 
it's a complex question, like all of the questions that you ask, in fact. <laughs> um, so there are several angles uh, to, uh, to it. Um, first of all, if we talk about uh, convergence, uh, as you mentioned before, I think that we have to be clear that in the recent past, there have been two movements going in slightly different directions. Uh, first of all, at the international level, we have become much more tolerant of differences uh, between competition laws around uh, uh, the world. Um, uh, and one of the reasons, is, I mean, there was a time I remember at OECD where the idea was that uh, if you had any kind of public interest clause or provision in your law, this was a bad law and you should not uh, enforce it. And then came South Africa, and South Africa said, well, thank you very much, uh, but uh, I am going to have in my law a provision that says that uh, we are trying to use competition law to redress the, the terrible things that happened in the previous regime and uh, to uh, further the, uh, the advancement of uh, the Black uh, population, which has been discriminated against. And the South African have said, look, of course we're going to have this in our competition law, because nobody in South Africa would be interested in competition, in competition unless we could use it in this way. Uh, that has changed the mood in the world, I would say, because it was pretty hard to say to the South African, no, 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 I mean, ignore the result of apartheid and then don't do anything. Uh, okay? So everybody understood that there was a great desire to try to eliminate the uh, evils of the past. And everybody agreed with the fact that um, part of this discrimination was due to the way in which large firms previously had behaved in South Africa. So there was a link with the, the business uh, businesses. Um, so I think the, there the movement has been in the, the following direction. Okay, we understand that competition laws are political act and that therefore they they may have objectives which are not purely economic as economists would love them to be, but, uh, and maybe lawyers. Uh, um, but what we want are a number of, of uh, things. First, uh, if you are going to have public interest, uh, we want those to be treated separately from the competition analysis. Okay? Second, we want to have guidelines to know ahead of time, and this is goes to your question about the uh, legal predictability uh, to know how those uh, public interest uh, uh, issues are going to be handled by uh, your competition law. Um, so on the one hand, we've become more tolerant. On the other hand, we've got become more similar because principles of transparency and uh, guidelines or guidance, uh, et cetera, and separation between the competition analysis and what may not be the competition analysis, even though it's part of the competition law, has been uh, progressing. Huh? Okay. So uh, I think that this is the uh, the movement, uh, which is, so I, I'm not sure that this leads to a diminished predictability. I mean, if it's implemented correctly, it is not going to lead to a diminished predictability of the competition laws, even if they have wider goals. Now, there's a second part of your discussion, uh, which is um, how come uh, the CMA and the EU disagreed on the same case? They had basically the same analysis 
and then they come to uh, remedies and they have drastically different views uh, on the remedies. I think that there the reason is um, that we don't entirely understand uh, how competition works in the digital sector. Um, and uh, that this is uh, because the digital sector is very different from the real, uh, the non-digital economy. We don't have pipeline firms, uh, we have ecosystems. Uh, those ecosystems are not in a particular market, but they can be, they, they can adapt their, uh, their um, uh, to, to many different services. I mean, their algorithm, uh, is able to function for uh, many different services, which means that the notions of relevant market or the notions of potential entry are completely different. Uh, they don't compete on prices. They mostly compete on innovation and differentiation of uh, uh, products, um, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the instruments that we have are not very well adapted. And second, um, I think that one of the weak points of competition law has always been the relationship between competition and innovation, and this is crucial in the digital sector. So for all those reasons, I think that we're trying to adapt ourselves to the fact that we're dealing with a sector which is quite different from the sectors that we've dealt with previously. And at first, it's practically inevitable that there will be differences of appreciations on, uh, but uh, you may have noticed that uh, whether at OECD or in many other forums, there've been a huge number of uh, efforts. Uh, I mean, a huge number of events that have tried to analyze competition law in the digital sectors and there are various different aspects. For example, at OECD, we've had 30 panels on, on those. I mean, so that's a lot, looking at all kinds of different uh, uh, issues to try to bring the countries as fast as possible to a similar understanding of the issues in the digital sector. Um, so we still are not, I mean, there are still areas where we are, uh, there are divergences, but slowly but surely those divergences are, uh, for example, I can point to um, uh, two-sided platforms. Um, at the beginning of the century, when we had cases in the banking sector, competition authorities completely disagreed with each other about how you should treat those two-sided platforms, whether they were two independent markets or whether they're two markets and you should not uh, uh, mix them or whether you should treat them as a, a market with two sides. This took a while before a consensus emerged. Well, we're going through the same process for the digital sector in general. Let me turn to a related topic, which is a cooperation and um harmonization. Um, you and the OECD have waged a long battle over many years, uh, supported by commentators and corporations and lawyers, uh, to harmonize merger enforcement and to reduce uh, duplication. As a fellow uh, soldier uh, in this battle, I think it's fair to say we've had only um, mixed success. Um, companies face a bewildering and increasing number of antitrust agencies. Um, and in fact, the situation is only becoming more complicated uh, with FDI, with foreign subsidies, with all sorts of other things to take account of. 
Um, and you find yourself in situations you'll be familiar with the complaints about having to notify in very many jurisdictions, getting, having to figure out different thresholds, receiving essentially the same requests from all sorts of agencies around the world. And at the end of the day, in most cases, they reach the same conclusion. Um, You've observed this, uh, this creation of this sort of extraordinary world over 30 years. Um, you know, 30 years ago, I will say there were only about half a dozen antitrust agencies. Now every country with a flag, more or less, has one. At the end of the day, sitting where we are now, do you think there's anything to be done? Should we just accept the world as we find it, a world that's probably only going to get more complicated? And finally, this is a three-part question. As we embark on digital regulation, which I will turn to next, do you think there are any lessons for digital regulation from the world we face in merger control and antitrust enforcement? Um, okay, so there are several issues which are, and, and you're right to, to mention them together because I think they are uh, to a certain extent uh, linked. Um, so let me start with cooperation first. Uh, um, um, Yes, I mean, we've seen the emergence of a great deal of cooperation uh, between competition authorities, either in a regional context, so that would be the EU, the ECN, et cetera, et cetera, or in the context of bilateral agreements between uh, competition authorities of uh, uh, two countries. And the reason we have had this, I mean, it's important to uh, go back, this was linked, of course, to the globalization that I was mentioning uh, earlier, to the fact that we were faced with a situation where there were multinational firms operating simultaneously on many different national markets, and which meant that for a competition authority, uh, sometimes the origin of its competition problem was a decision that the firm had done outside of its jurisdiction in another country, but which had an implication uh, for the country. So the kind of cooperation that uh, developed was a cooperation where the competition authority of the affected country could seek the help of the competition authorities of the country where the practice was initiated, which had an effect on the affected country. Uh, so we developed uh, protocols to exchange information in, in sometimes uh, confidential information, not too often, but uh, uh, there are a few uh, examples of that. And, um, uh, and also uh, some cooperation on merger remedies uh, uh, to try to make sure that the remedies are consistent if we're talking about a transnational uh, uh, merger. Um, now, I think that the world has changed again. I mean, I go back to uh, the emergence of the digital sector in the sense that our problem is not to have multinational firms operating on many different national markets. Our problem is that we have global actors uh, operating on the global market. Uh, the platforms operate worldwide. Okay? There's not a set of national market, there's just a global market. And each market is a very small part of this global market. So, that means that many more practices in the digital sector, I think, anti-competitive practices or potential anti, potentially anti-competitive practices, many more of those practices have exactly the same effect and present themselves exactly in the same way from one country to the next. 
because uh, Google doesn't have a policy for France, which is different in many cases from the policy for Germany or the policy for India. It's the same, and uh, very often the effect is the same. Now, in a configuration of that kind, where we start from a global market as opposed to starting from national markets, the question is really whether the style of cooperation that we have developed is particularly useful. Um, so let me illustrate this with two examples. How many booking.com cases do we want to have? I mean, booking.com is a tag for uh, price parity clauses uh, was a tag. And so there was a case in Germany, there was a case in Sweden, there was a case in France, there was a case everywhere. Now, we were all going after the same practice, which basically seemed to have exactly the same effect. And there was a terrible waste of time and cooperation protocols were not so useful for two reasons. But one of them was that in cases of that type, there's not much information that you don't know uh, because the policy is set worldwide. So you have all the information you need. Um, I mean, it's public. So, the, you have exactly the same case as the other uh, country. And the idea that each competition authority is going to bring its case and seek the help of another competition authority just seems to be an enormous waste of resources and time uh, on the part of competition authorities, which is too bad because they already have fairly limited means compared to the uh, larger platforms. Um, I could say exactly the same about the Apple Pay uh, cases. Uh, okay, so we have one again in the, in the Netherlands and then we have um, Apple uh, Pay cases uh, all over the world. But the effect of Apple imposing the fact that there is, you have to go through the Apple Pay for the transactions on, on uh, uh, the Apple ecosystem is the same and the analysis, competition analysis should be the same uh, in, uh, most countries, at least from the economic point of view. So again, I mean, it doesn't make sense to have all those cases. So what that tells me is that we have to refocus cooperation. It's not so much cooperation on helping, helping each other investigate a case, but we need some kind of coordination of cases. Uh, now I'm saying there are many ways or there are different ways that one can do that. Uh, one of them is that uh, we can have a lead jurisdiction, for example, uh, uh, or we can have mutual recognition of decisions that don't require that we go through all the steps of, uh, or we can have joint decisions. And it happens that uh, in the uh, booking.com case, um, the Swedish competition authority, the French competition authority, and the Italian competition authority actually rendered a joint decision. Uh, okay, so this is, uh, I mean, whatever the reason for that, uh, but but we see that there was an example of a joint decision. So I think that we should refocus cooperation from helping each other investigate the cases we have to something that would be a better coordination between the cases that we bring. Um, and a division of labor or a cooperative effort to uh, bring those cases together. Fred, uh, hearing that, the cynic might say, well, that 
that uh, that call was made many years ago by many people with respect to merger control. The same, uh, the same admonition could be made. Let's have a lead authority. Let's have cooperation. Let's avoid duplication. It hasn't really come to pass. Are you are you yeah. more optimistic in the digital area? I I don't know if I'm optimistic because I think that uh, competition between competition authorities is is something which is rather destructive. In fact and is going to lead them to say, oh, no, no, I don't want to give up any of my... I'm encouraged by the fact that the Swedes, the Italians, and the French came together in a joint decision. But I would point on that. You're absolutely right to say that this, this was uh, something that was talked about in the past. But I think there is a difference. And, and the difference is that we still have national markets, and those national markets could have differences, which meant that the same practice on different markets but separate markets were not exactly the same. This has receded to a large extent, at least when we talk about the digital sector, because it is a global sector by nature. I mean, it is not a set of national markets. Uh, it's uh, nations which are part of those global markets rather than the markets being uh, part of the nation. Uh, so I think there is even more reason now, although there's more reason to revisit this issue uh, that uh, you're quite right was uh, talked about, but didn't uh, lead to uh, much. Uh, I mean, it led to a little bit of coordination, but certainly not enough. Uh, but I think there's an, another reason: it's competition authorities are going to run out of money. Period. Okay. And when they do that, they're going to not look at other cases in other sectors because they will have spent all their resources in terms of skills, in terms of um, investigation uh, on, on those cases, which are just duplicating each other. Well, there's a very real debate to be had, it seems to me, about uh, just how much we can expect of competition agencies now. I mean, we're piling on additional responsibilities, foreign subsidies, for example, for the European Commission, in addition to digital regulation, in addition to merger control and state aid. And that inevitably, unless you expand the number of people, is going to mean fewer people for cartels and for other sorts of enforcement activities. But we've touched on digital regulation uh, a couple of times. Of course, it's uh, impossible to ignore in this uh, environment. A couple of questions. Um, Firstly, to, to some extent, um, the rush to regulation is an implicit admission that existing tools weren't sufficient. And my question is whether you share the view that, that in effect, legislatures were right to give up on existing antitrust rules as being sufficiently effective and that regulation was the way to go, because many might say that should be the last resort. And then with your OECD hat on, I can't think of a situation certainly not in recent times, were, that we're going to have, it seems, of digital regulators around the world essentially regulating U.S. companies in a world where there is no comparable system of U.S. regulation to regulate those same companies. Do you have any reaction to that? Um, first of all, I yeah, I mean, I do have a reaction, but the, the, this reaction is the fact that I think that uh, the rush to regulate was uh, partly uh, too early. Uh, I mentioned earlier on that there are differences between the digital sector uh, uh, and non-digital sectors in how competition works. And there are several consequences of that. One of them is that some of the tools that we're used to uh, 
use in competition law enforcement are inadequate. The uh, best example of this is the price cost margin. Okay, so we're used to think that uh, market power can be uh, uh, actually uh, uh, measured by the importance of the difference between the price and the cost. Well, on markets, when there is no price, price cost margin doesn't mean anything. And therefore, everything that we thought we knew about uh, uh, predation, for example, does not apply in the digital sector in the, in the same way, which doesn't mean that they cannot be predation, but it's it's not the, the same way that uh, one can establish it. Um, um, okay, so barriers to entry, as we said, I said earlier, are not the same. Uh, or notion of potential competition is not the same. The relevant market is not really relevant. Prices are not relevant. Um, so we are in a Schumpeterian kind of competition as opposed to the Stieglerian, I would say, uh, competition, which is mostly a price competition that we see in, in other sectors. The question is that we don't know all that much about the relationship between competition and innovation. Uh, I hear that, uh, well, there's this inverted U-curve, uh, and I smile when I hear that because it makes me feel very young. I mean, in 1977, um, uh, before 1977, it was 1972, Mike Shear used to teach me that uh, when I was in school uh, in the US. Okay. So since then, not much has, has happened. Um, but the reality of the sector um, which becomes a, a crucially important part of the economy is that we are now in a Schumpeterian kind of uh, environment and therefore we have to deal with this. Now, before one can regulate, uh, one should understand the issue. Uh, just like before one should, uh, before um, enforcing competition law, one should understand what, how competition works. And it seems to me that rushing into decision, particularly with the kind of regulation that we have uh, in the DMA, which pronounces uh, prohibitions, uh, without having thought about the fact that uh, competitors may have, because of the nature of digital firms, which are multi-sided, they may have different business models. And if they have different model business models, maybe a prohibition is adequate for some firms, but not for the others, which have a different uh, uh, way of uh, uh, functioning. Um, I think that there's a danger there. So if we were to say we want a regulation, um, uh, if we thought that we knew enough, since it's still a relatively new field, I would much prefer the kind of regulation which is uh, uh, proposed in the UK, which is a more bespoke regulation. Competition authorities have a lot of power, but those power they're going to use after having looked precisely at uh, the competition issues uh, that they think is bothering them, rather than having pronouncement ab initio that this and that practice should be uh, prohibited. So I think that we are going a bit too fast. Now, I think that eventually there is going to be convergence in regulations uh, because we're going to learn and we're going to revise them. And even if you think about the DMA, it's always been mentioned that the DMA could be revised and will be revised as uh, experience is, is gained. Um, but I think that this is an added reason not to have 
too strict a regulation at the beginning because we're not entirely sure what this is going to do to innovation. And I think that innovation is really important. Right, thank you. One last question before the quick fire questions. Um, you'll recall well um, uh, the debate in Europe about the role of uh, economists uh, and economics uh, really came to a head with the uh, trilogy of uh, reversals the Commission suffered in the early 2000s in the merger area, and there was then the appointment of the chief economist and so forth, and more systematic economic framework as applied in merger control, and you alluded to it in uh, 102 as well. Some have the impression in the last few years, and that could be consistent with some of the other things you've been talking about, that economics and economists uh, are playing a less important role, um, internal documents, political objectives, um, objectives other than consumer welfare, which you've spoken of to some extent approvingly. Do you think there's still a central role for economists and economics in, in antitrust enforcement today? As an economist, I tend to think that uh, the economic dimension of competition is quite important. But as I said, as a practitioner, uh, I also say that this is only one part of the story. Second thing, uh, I tend to agree with you that the role of economists is, is, is not as important now as uh, would have been anticipated when we were in 2020, for example. Uh, and I think there, there is maybe uh, three reasons why this is true. Uh, the first one is what I've talked about, the fact that there's been a shift from the static efficiency framework into a more dynamic uh, kind of uh, uh, perspective, and that economists have less to say about the dynamic perspective because they have less, I mean, because they started from a static uh, model, uh, really, and uh, that's where they are, they have developed their trade, and uh, uh, they, that's where they have more certainty uh, and more things to uh, contribute. Um, so I think there's a period of adaptation. The period of adaptation is that now the economics of innovation is coming back as, as a, a major field of investigation. Uh, but for the time being, uh, looking at the incentives and how the practice is going to change the incentive in the short run uh, may be less central to the desire to keep in check power, economic power uh, in general. I think the second reason is the fact that contrary to, maybe to what you seem to have said, I do not actually believe that the EU Commission moved to a more uh, economic approach. Uh, there was the, the, the guidelines uh, or the guidance, uh, the paper on the exclusionary abuse of dominance, but it was never followed. Uh, uh, at some point, the Commission uh, asked the uh, economic advisory group, what do you think? How do you think we should uh, uh, interpret competition law? And that gave a great paper. And the paper had a great advantage, which is that it was bringing, at least uh, formally, the EU closer to what was being done in the US. And as soon as the paper was out, it was forgotten by the commission, or it was ignored rather than forgotten. I don't think it was forgotten. I think it was ignored. Um, uh, and I mean, there are several reasons for that. Uh, one possibility is the fact that the, the uh, DG Comp was worried about the fact that the judges would not, I mean, the courts would not follow this approach. 
and we know that there was resistance initially. I mean, Vlato Vils and, and others, uh, uh, Ms. Cocotte, uh, have um, spoken against this uh, uh, movement towards a more economic approach. Uh, so the fear of being defeated by the courts may have pushed the legal service to push the DigiComp not to implement uh, the uh, more economic approach. This is in the era of anti-competitive practices. I completely agree with the fact that with respect to merger control, there's been much more import of uh, economic analysis than uh, there, there was, and that this has been for the better. But if we take uh, abuses of dominance, or if we take uh, vertical restrictions, uh, there hasn't been much uh, economic analysis uh, at all. Um, the third reason, I think, is that there are some limitation of economic analysis, that it has been used a bit strategically by the economists. Um, and the fact that they focused exclusively on incentive in a static context at a time when there was this shift, as told, as shown that they were not as relevant as they should have been. Okay. So on the one hand, they were um, because they were a little bit too strategic. Maybe because they were amazed at the fact that they could uh, earn all those consulting fees uh, that uh, they had never dreamed of. Um, but they were a little bit more, a bit too ready to come up with very sophisticated models that could say anything that you wanted. Um, so that did not, of course, uh, give an incentive to judges to listen to them very carefully. Um, uh, and the second uh, uh, dimension is that they used words that the judges could not understand, so they also block uh, any possibility that the judges would uh, follow them. Um, so I think that those three elements contributed to slowly but surely to the fact that the economies didn't play as much of a role as the one would have expected. Um, at least in Europe. Um, and, and as I said, this is outside of merger control where I think that the situation is more satisfactory. Brett, we could keep talking for ages. Uh, I've got three quick fire questions though to end our session today, and it's been a fascinating one. Firstly, if you could change one thing about enforcement today, what would it be? I, first of all, one thing that I would change would be cooperation and enforcement. I've already mentioned that. Uh, but maybe, um, the second thing that I would like to change is I, I think it would be very useful to have specialized courts reviewing uh, decisions of competition authorities in Europe, at least, or in, outside of the US. Um, because there could be courts that have a better economic sense uh, uh, and would be more relevant. Uh, and I think that the countries that have a specialized course have tended to fare better than uh, the country where the decisions are reviewed by general courts, because the general courts have a lot of difficulty uh, getting this uh, economic analysis. Uh, and if I were really God, I would try to eliminate competition between competition authorities. <laughs> but I don't know how to do that. Second question, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Uh, I, I don't know that I'm a good judge of uh, achievement, but I can tell you what I, what for me was the, the most, and, and in fact, there's a link between the greatest achievement and the greatest regret. My greatest achievement was um, to find a way to be useful when I became a judge on the French Supreme Court. 
because there was an economy. So it was coming, I mean, they had never had an economies before as a judge. They didn't know how to talk to me. I didn't know how to talk to them. I didn't know what I could bring them. Those were very senior judges who had had wonderful uh, uh, career um, and were uh, highly uh, regarded. And when I got there, I really asked myself, what can I tell them that could be of interest? And eventually, and, and I did this because it scared me. Uh, and uh, I thought that it was good that I was scared and that I should learn something. And eventually, um, I think we did find a way uh, to enrich each other, um, which was uh, to, um, uh, for me to talk about the consequences of various legal positions that they could take because they were very much formatted to think about the particular case and to deliberate on the particular case, but much less uh, intuitively prepared to say, well, if we go in that direction, this is going to send this and that message, and those are the consequences that uh, could. So I think that there was a mutual interest in the discussion that I could bring to the table by saying, well, uh, between various legal options, uh, Keep in mind the fact that uh, uh, those will have different meaning uh, for the outside world and uh, will have consequences uh, there. My greatest regret is the fact that um, even though I was asked by the Chief Justice to try to find another economist to replace me on the court, uh, I talked to all the uh, economists, uh, the French economists, uh, that uh, could have been suitable, and none of them wanted to take the job by saying, why should I go in a hostile environment where I'm going to be a nobody and where I'm going to have to learn a completely new field? Um, so, so the tradition of having an economist, which could have been continued and which I thought was an excellent uh, 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 thing, was lost when I finished my mandate. And so that was my biggest regret. Of course, an alternative explanation may have been they viewed you as a hard act to follow. But let me turn to my final quickfire question, Fred. Is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? I don't know that this is that interesting or that, uh, but um, I discovered competition by chance, uh, to be honest. When I went to the US, uh, I went to the University of Chicago and I needed funding for that. And um, uh, I had a position in a business school and the business school said, okay, well, we will contribute to your studies in the US, but only on the condition that you learn something that you can teach in a business school. So I went to Chicago. I followed the courses of Milton Friedman, but I knew that monetary policy could not be something that I would come back with. And that's how I got into uh, uh, industrial organization and from industrial organization into competition law, because this was the closest to business strategy and uh, uh, that I could uh, uh, be interested in in an economics department um, and be able to come bring back to uh, the business school. So it was really by chance. Uh, since then, I've decided that I really liked the competition that uh, um, and the reason I like it is more for philosophical reasons, because it, it says something about uh, equality of opportunities. And uh, I very much believe that this is an important part of uh, life and, and, and the way things should be. Uh, but uh, OK, so that's uh, one. Now I could 
if we have another podcast, I'll tell you how come I ended in jail twice. Uh, but that's for a different, uh, uh, a different podcast. I'm definitely going to have you on a second time now, Fred. <laughs> Thank you very much. That chance was our good fortune. Um, I really appreciate the wisdom you've shared this afternoon. And of course, the huge contribution you've made to our uh, profession and our learning over all those years. It's been a great pleasure doing the podcast with you today. Thank you for listening. I'm Nick Levy and look forward to welcoming you to our next edition of the Clary Gottlieb Antitrust Review.